You're tuned to Radio BCC, and this is the Six O'Clock Swill. Welcome back to live commentary on the epic battle between the human race and the plague. Every swab, every jab, every word that falls from Anastasia Palaszczuk's lips and a few that don't, you'll hear them here first from the continuous call team. Tim Blair, Nick Cater and Simon Collins. Later we're across to London for Brendan O'Neill, the editor of Spiked Online, uh, who's a reliable supplier of copious good sense, which is something we're running rather short of in these locked down times. First, however, we crossed to Florida, where a Republican governor, frequently tipped as a future president, made a forceful entry into the diplomatic arena with these remarks about Australia this week. You guys look what's going on in Australia right now. You know, they're enforcing, after a year and a half, they're still enforcing lockdowns by the military. Um, And that's not a free country. Uh, it's not a free country at all. Well, it's always um, hard to hear our country criticised by foreigners. As um, Barry McKenzie said, this is the best bloody country on earth, no worries. Uh, but Ron DeSantis, uh, Governor of Florida. Now, Tim, perhaps there's something only your friends will tell you. I think he's um, he's got a few Australian fans now after that, that remark. He had a few already. Uh, people who've been watching um, his response as the, as the Florida governor to... Um, to the pandemic and comparing it to uh, certain other Democrat governors in other states, um, a couple of whom aren't in power anymore, or uh, at least one of them's gone in New York. But uh, you've, you're losing people left, right, and centre in um, in uh, in places like New Jersey and New York. But uh, Florida, with a with an elderly population, by the way, did very well under DeSantis, and they weren't altogether locked down all the time. There was an impressive effort. To me, there was something definitely Mickey Mouse about America during COVID. Disney World in Florida, a Republican state, stayed open, while Disneyland in California, a Democrat one-party state, was closed. It tells you something, doesn't it? No, it's it's great to look at, uh, even at the peak of the pandemic, I was getting uh, videos sent to me from friends in the US going, check out Florida. It was all these people going to bars and hanging out at beaches and just... You know, they were being Florida. You know, it's a it's a it's a different place, and um, and uh, one uh, I recommended a lot of people visit. Maybe not for Miami. Maybe the 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 north of Florida is a lot of a lot of uh, a lot better to um, uh, people watch, especially. It's an unusual state. Surely, DeSantis should know that judging Australia by what happens in Victoria is like judging America by what happens in Boston or Seattle. It's like judging Europe by the Soviet Union. It's uh, it's just not not right. I'd rather we didn't get lumped in with Victoria, though. I mean, that's that's just unfair in New South Wales. I mean, you know, I fled the joint a few decades ago when, uh, you know, as, as someone else who who left a, a little earlier said of the joint, I you know, I quit Victoria when they made it illegal to smile, and um, and they've maintained that policy subsequently. Well, exactly. That's the shame about the last few. The last few. Um, I'm sure we'll. And I know. I know we'll get onto her, but to the last few, you know, months of Gladys's reign, are kind of marred by by the fact that she did seem to sort of toe the line of of uh, on COVID that she'd resisted for so well for so long. But it looks like she's coming out of it. She's coming out of it first, though. Yeah. Okay. Well, well let's, let's just reflect on uh, Gladys Berejiklian since we're recording this podcast just hours after the premiere of New South Wales resigned because she's under investigation by the Independent 
Commission Against Corruption. Now, I should explain for the sake of Ron DeSantis and uh, any others <laughs> tuning in from the States that uh, to be investigated by ICAC is no reflection on your suitability to lead a government. Gladys is the uh, third Liberal Premier to resign in the face of an ICAC investigation and uh, ICAC has yet to lay a glove on any of them. Nothing, nothing close, nothing, anything close to a prosecution brief, brief or anything that would last more than, say, 10 seconds in court. If ICAC was a dog, you'd probably have it put down. Yeah, it's not uh, It's not great, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not entirely against just removing politicians for the sake of it. It's just that every so often they get a good one. Um, and uh, actually, if you look at it, it's, a, it's fascinating that there's a pattern here. The last, uh, last three Liberal premiers of New South Wales have all won one election and then been thrown out or quit. Um, if you work out the average of their terms, we can now forecast what will happen with the next Premier. And by my calculations, the next Premier will win the next election and then in somewhere early in April in 2025, resign. So, you know, just remember the date. We'll see how we go. They survive on average about about 1,300 days. So that's all you've got. It's a short-term, you know, high-reward contract. It's hard not to find yourself instantly comparing Gladys's fate with Dan's fate. Because, you know, there's a woman who, um, who, who, who worked really hard, selflessly, made very lots of very smart decisions, not just through COVID, but prior to that, through, through the bushfires. She's been absolutely brilliant. Um, and then... You know, one, as we'll come to, you know, I'm sure we'll come back to one slight personal life uh, mistake costs somebody who could have been truly great, maybe even have gone on and done things at a national level. Whereas Dan, <laughs> Dan seems to be absolutely tef tef Teflon Dan. I, I actually, I've got three limericks this week, but I did make one up about Dan. <laughs> Do you want to hear it? <laughs> this is a, this is an homage to Dan to Dan's to Dan's unshakability. Okay, the world had seen no one like Dan when Tammy sang "Stand by Your Man," but two or three mil Melburnians will when polled say, "Yes, still a Dan fan." <laughs> they love him. They love the man, and that was the good thing about Gladys. You know, uh, no cult of personality. Some might say no personality, but uh, that was cool. I don't, you know, I don't think politicians need personality. I kind of, I kind of liked her, um, liked her approach. You you can't fake authenticity, as they say, and uh, Gladys didn't mm. have to fake it. And people people like that. I think they liked her sort of down to earth. Uh, I haven't got tickets on myself sort of approach. Yeah, yeah, I think they did, and uh, and uh, we'll see what happens with the whoever the next uh, next person is. Uh, likely a chap, I believe, is uh, it's. We don't have too many women in the mix now. Well, let's stick with women. Let's stick with women, Tim. I think people have accused us of gender bias on this show. I don't know why, but... Uh... Well, you just used the word women, which is a banned term in woke circles, so you're, uh, you're starting off with the wrong foot straight away. Yeah, it's, it's hard to unlearn old habits, isn't it? But um, <laughs> it really is. But anyway, what, what a delight it was to hear again from the melodramatic gloom-monger-in-chief in the Calamity movement, Greta Thunberg, 
Uh, you say what you like about her, but she does deliver a mean speech. This is not about some expensive, politically correct, green act of bunny-hugging or blah, blah, blah. Build back better, blah, blah, blah. Green economy, blah, blah, blah. Net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. I actually, I, I actually made a note of that because I was going to talk about it. And I thought there was something odd about, about that because not only, she's, you know, that was followed by, of course, a round of applause from her teenage uh, audience. And then, and, and, she, and she clearly loved that. So she repeated it again. She went through all the blahs again. Well, it's, if it's an applause line, as you know, you've got to, you've got to you know, stick, your, stick your punch lines. Yeah, and she's a great performer now. But it made me wonder whether, whether, that, really was, whether that really was her, you know, to holding world leaders to account for their inactivity on their climate change policies or, or whether she'd simply picked up the speech off the, off the screen, speechwriter's desk before he'd finished it. And he'd only got as far as doing the bullet points. And he hadn't written, he hadn't written the bits between, you know. The... Mate, you've just reminded me of a famous story about Robin Williams. Um, Half-hour sitcoms tend to be a certain length for obvious reasons. And, uh, you know, they have a certain heft to them. So when you're handed the script, yep, this feels about right. This feels like half an hour of television. But the scripts for Mork and Mindy, Robert Williams' sort of breakthrough series, were always noticeably thinner than any other half-hour sitcom script. And it's because there'd be whole sections where the scriptwriter would simply say, Robin does something. And he'd just fill it out with whatever goofy, Morkian nonsense he was up to that week. But maybe we've got like a, a whole... Uh, a whole uh, range of future Greta speeches coming towards us. We've had the you know the world breaking, the world shattering blah 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 speech, which will go down as you know, the equal of anything said by Churchill. But <laughs> I look forward to her uh, her speech next week, the um, the soon to be celebrated yada 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 speech, which I think is going to be before the UN. Well, um, all is not well between the two women competing for the reincarnation of Mother Teresa, Miss Thunberg and the Premier of New Zealand, Jacinta Ardern. Thunberg made these comments to The Guardian. It's funny that people believe Jacinta Ardern and people like that are climate leaders. That just tells you how little people know about the climate crisis, she said. Obviously, admissions haven't for them. It goes without saying that these people are not doing anything. Tim, Simon, who, who is sports bet favouring in the race towards uh, full papal beatification between uh, these two? Well, it's a real turf war, isn't it? You've got uh, Jacinda Ardern, um, uh, you know, posing as a climate activist by, uh, by Gre- Greta's estimation. And uh, Greta, I don't think, likes sharing the limelight with anyone, especially some, you know, Kiwi, you know, surfboard mouth PM who's... Um, Trying to trying to claim a bit of Greta glory, this won't stand. Well, I, and I tell you, I tell you what also it, it also proves what a lot a lot of people who are, you, you could call cynical observers would have said for a long time is that, uh, um, especially those slightly to the right of centre, have said, you know, the thing about the thing about the thing about greedies, the thing about the the, the 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 left is they they do tend to eat their own, and you you know just because you throw your weight behind somebody. Uh, on the far left doesn't mean to say that they aren't going to turn on you at any opportunity. Um, and uh, I suspect, I suspect Jacinda was, 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 was quite shocked by the, uh, by, by that, uh, that, that outburst from Greta. 
I think Greta might have a, a future as an insult comic. You know, there's a particular strand of comedy known as insult comics. And uh, imagine if Greta just started lashing out and saying, back in your box, you know, I'm not going to be talked down to by someone whose mouth looks like an ivory graveyard. Now, you pull your head, head in. <laughs> I'm a Swedish schoolgirl, which globally ranks me a million points higher than New Zealand Prime Minister. You know, uh, uh, cut it out or um, or I'll be uh, sitting around the solar-powered yacht. I, I blame uh, Time magazine for this. They started this when they set out their three favourite contenders for, for Nobel Prize winner. I mean, it was Greta Thunberg, <laughs> Jacinda Ardern and the World Health, Health Organisation. And uh, <laughs> they therefore completed their, you know, their usual stunt of getting three completely unlikely winners up there and, and saying more about how that fine magazine, which I think you want to work for, has... Uh, Tim has, has gone completely and utterly woke uh, and absolutely oh, nothing yeah. about the um, Nobel Prize. You're absolutely right, and and and, and uh, but I thought I thought it shouldn't. You know, I thought the uh, the clash of the titans here, the the clash of the green titans, shouldn't go un, unmarked in verse. So I did do a little um, a little a little homage to both of them to record this 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 uh, this this brief this this friction. Uh, and, I, and I've done it. I've tried to do it in a way that acknowledges the contribution she made at this this fantastic landmark event, the 2021 uh, 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 Youth for Climate Summit in Milan. When you put fossil fuel in your car, said Greta, you blah 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 blah. And to Jacinda's claim, Kiwis are not to blame. Yes, you blah, 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 bloody well are. <laughs> so will you fill in the missing words for next week? Well, that's the point. I think, I think, just, I think, I think Greta stumbled on a new, and I, you know, it's, a new, a new, it's a new rhetorical technique. You don't need to do the link bits. You just, you just bullet points it. It would have made, um, we mentioned Churchill just earlier, but uh, you know, his speech might have scared a lot better if it was, you know, we'll fight them on the beaches, blah, blah, blah. You know, everyone gets the gist. That's it. Now that's a new. That's a. That's an, an album. The world's greatest speeches, uh, a, la, a la Greta Thunberg. Yes. <laughs> Just chuck in some blah blahs and job done. That that that'll be that'll be the biggest that'll be the biggest Swedish hit since ABBA's greatest hits. Look, we, we've got to cross to uh, to London to hear from uh, Brendan O'Neill very soon. But just just time for quick comments on this item. I saw a, a, a world survey of the cost of living found that Australia has the most expensive cigarettes in the world, bar none, and the second most expensive beer. Uh, my thoughts on this, I wonder whether we, we, well, we I think we knew it was, wasn't cheap, right? Especially for smokers like you, Tim. But my thoughts are, surely you should have read the warning signs here. Surely we should have known already, before, long before COVID, that our public health experts here mm. were whip-cracking, purse-lipped wowsers who we shouldn't let loose on anything, let alone managing a pandemic. Well, you know, just for argument's sake, I mean, you know, I, um, I obviously have no personal investment in either uh, cigarettes or beer, of course, so this is largely academic. <coughs> um <laughs> it, it is extraordinary. It's always fun when you get visitors from particularly the U.S., who are smokers and they 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 want to buy a local packet, and um, 
they invariably get confused when they're told the price and the, the, they try to say, look, I'm not buying a truckload. I just want one packet, please. And um, no, that's what it costs. But back in the day when um, people would try to, you know, scab a, a cigarette off you in a, in a pub, it would generally be, you know, they'd, they'd make a token offer of, you know, giving you a dollar coin and you just wave that off. Just, no, not a problem, mate. Have, have a cigarette. Now, unless they're waving around a $2 coin at minimum, you know, that's no deal. You can, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a big investment. Well, I had the experience in a bar in Detroit, you know, where we were sitting there, Rebecca and I, one afternoon and a couple of guys got talking to us and one said, where are you from? We said, Australia. And I thought, well, here we go again. You know, the normal conversation about Steve Irwin and uh, Crocodile Dundee and Paul Hogan. But no, he said... Um, Hey, I hear you guys uh, in Australia that uh, $26 for a packet of cigarettes. I said, and the rest. And he screamed out to everybody in the bar, Hey, guys, this guy's from Australia and it's $26 for a packet of cigarettes. It was so extraordinary to them. Um, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, it's, um, I was in a bar years ago in um, Lubbock, Texas, birthplace of Buddy Holly. And... Uh, it was an unusual bar. It wasn't really so much down at heel as just down. It didn't have a floor. The floor was dirt. And uh, lovely people, though. And they found out I'm Australian, and one of them um, one of them said, is it true what they say, that handguns are illegal in Australia? I said, oh, yeah, totally true. And the, the bar was scandalised, and they were like, so you've not even probably even seen a handgun? I said, not outside of movies, No. Everyone wandered out to their trucks and brought in their guns. <laughs> They're like, "Yeah, this this is what we call a magnum. Yeah, this one's a this one's only a, like a lady's gun. This one, it's just a thirty-three. And they're talking through me like they go, "Whoa, sorry, I didn't realize it was loaded." <laughs> and I'm like, "These people are fantastic." Well, thanks to Dan Andrews, Americans have got something else to talk about about something another fact they know about Australia. Now we're just listening to Ron DeSantis once again. You guys look what's going on in Australia right now. You know, they're enforcing, after a year and a half, they're still enforcing lockdowns by the military. Um, and that's not a free country. Blah, blah, blah. Net zero by 2050. Blah, blah, blah. You're tuned to the continuous call on Radio BCC with Tim Blair, Simon Collins, and Nick Cater. And now it's uh, my great pleasure to welcome our guest, Brendan O'Neill from London. Brendan, welcome. Hi, Nick. How's it going? Well, well, it's kind of you to ask. I mean, uh, we've been locked down for I don't know a couple of centuries or so. I've no idea of the day <laughs> of the week, other than that we're recording this podcast. So it's probably Friday. Uh, people on the streets of Melbourne are being peppered with rubber bullets. Otherwise, we're fine, Brendan. Um, how's life on the other side of the Iron Curtain? Yeah, mm. the the Australian situation is mind blowing. I mean, it's really staggering because in Britain, Australia was held up as the great success story for a, a whole year, and it was used as a battering ram against anyone who said we shouldn't have severe lockdowns, we shouldn't close the borders, we should chill out a little bit, we should learn to live with the virus. Everyone would always say, "Look at Australia; they're the ones who've done it correctly. They're the ones we should be following." And now, a year and a half later, we've got pretty much all our freedoms back. I can do anything I want, pretty much. And you guys are in these severe lockdowns. The police are on the streets beating people up and firing rubber bullets. It, it really is an extraordinary state of affairs. And I think it shows up the psychotic idea of zero COVID, which is just a complete 
fantasy, which is now leading to this authoritarian nightmare. Brendan, the last time Australian prisoners were in contact with a, a liberated Brit was sometime in the early 19th century. Um, <laughs> things have switched around a little bit. Just to give a, an idea to um, imprisoned Australians, when Freedom Day was declared in the UK, what was the instant sort of change of mindset and attitude among the people? Well, it was a little bit slow to begin with. I mean, there was an outburst of joy and what was particularly inspiring was that all these young people were queuing outside nightclubs. Nightclubs opened at midnight on Freedom Day, so people were queuing outside nightclubs at half right. 11 at night and presumably spent the whole of Monday in there. Um, so all that stuff was really quite moving and, and a great joy to see. But across the population, Freedom Day was a bit slow to start off with. Pubs were still a bit quiet. Um, the tube was very quiet for a long time. But over time, in within a couple of weeks, things really t started to pick up. And now it really does feel like normal life. And uh, given everything we've been through, that is pretty extraordinary. You still see some people wearing masks. It's still mandatory to wear a mask on the under London Underground because we're ruled by a tin pot mayor called Sadiq Khan who loves to... Uh, carry on authoritarian measures even when the rest of the country gets rid of them. Uh, but even on the tube, I would say around a third of people are wearing masks and everyone else has just stopped. So they're, they're defying the law because they're sick and tired of it. So there has been this uh, a re-embracing of freedom. There's still a little bit of a culture of fear. There's still a little bit of trepidation. We still have all these warnings about what might happen in winter. But generally speaking, there's a sense of happiness that we're going back to normal. I, I see. Uh, I see. Looking at the looking at the UK news, Brendan. Uh, my mother lived. My mother, who I'm hoping to go and see, because uh, she's in her eighties and has dementia, uh, and she lives in South Wales. And I see there's actually still some division though between, you know, between England and Wales, and you know the the, de the devolution of COVID rules is still seems to be going there. Yeah. Well, Wales. Wales became an absolutely crazy country over the past uh, 18 months. Uh, it, the first minister in Wales, Mark Drakeford, is a pretty, uh, well, I, I, I don't know what I'm allowed to say, but he's, he's, a, he's a strange man and he seems to have a, a penchant for authoritarian measures. So this is the country in which, for example, even when they opened supermarkets so that we could at least, Welsh people could at least go and buy food, they were taping off things like toys and clothes and books because these were not seen as essential items. So books are no longer essential items in a lockdown. You could buy food, but you couldn't buy a book. You could sustain your stomach, but you couldn't, uh, uh, you know, activate your mind. So all that stuff was happening in Wales, and it was always seen as a bit of a crazy outlier, even though the UK more broadly had quite severe lockdowns. Uh, Scotland and Wales and, and England, they have different rules on, on aspects of the lockdown. They, 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 we all tend to move in the same direction. So even if Scotland and Wales take a little bit longer to open up, it does still move in the same direction. But yes, they, ha they have had different rules. Different local leaders have loved lockdown and others have hated it. So Boris Johnson, uh, who obviously is the prime minister of the whole country, he always agitated against lockdown or at least gave the impression that he was regretful that this had to be done. Whereas Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland seemed to love the lockdown. She loved the power it gave her over her own people. And there was a real, she had this real thirst to kind of 
stamp on people with her high heel boot and and make sure that they followed the rules and there was a similar situation in Wales where Mark Drakeford seemed to relish aspects of the control that was given to him by these rules so there were there were different um experiences of lockdown across the four nations of the United Kingdom uh, but thankfully we're now all moving in the right direction there is still a big question mark over what happens at winter uh, but we'll have to wait and see it might be that in time we look upon the remnants of the mask wearers as um, as we kind of look at, at goths, you know, a strange kind of uh, fashion anomaly that persists for no good reason at all. Uh, I say that not knowing if Brendan was, in fact, in his past life, a goth himself. Anyway, we can avoid any awareness of that. <laughs> One thing that's been notable in the UK and Australia was that all the predictions of tens of thousands of mega deaths and horror from our authorities, never happened. We had a, a, a respected modelling institute in Australia tell us at the beginning of uh, August that by now, New South Wales would have 8,000 cases a day. It's never got even close to that. But still, these people are respected. What's the deal with that? Uh, you know, I, I think that the, the crisis of expertise and the crisis of science that we're going to have coming out of this whole experience is going to be extraordinary because so many wrong predictions were made, so many hysterical claims were made, so much nonsense was pumped into the public sphere by so-called experts. I, I really think it's going to be difficult for them to recover from this. I mean, the clearest example of it for me was on Freedom Day, when we got our freedom back a few months ago, um, lots of experts, lots of zero COVID fanatics, as I call them, these kind of epi epidemiologists and scientists and advisors to the government, they said Freedom Day would be a disaster. It is a, a an experiment on the population that would lead to thousands and thousands of deaths and hospitals being overwhelmed and young people getting long COVID. I'm increasingly convinced that long COVID, even though COVID is very real, I'm increasingly convinced that long COVID is more a disease of the mind, but maybe we can leave that for another time. But they made all these hysterical predictions um, and it just didn't happen. And in fact, what's happened since Freedom Day is that um, deaths and hospitalizations have either plateaued or there's been downward dips. So all their predictions didn't come true. But these people are still taken seriously. Now, I think what they did was actually unforgivable. They spread a, a toxic culture of fear. And I know for a fact that this impacted on people. I have a family member who is vulnerable uh, medically vulnerable and therefore concerned about very concerned about covid and she was really worried about freedom day because she heard these people they were never off the tv they were never out of the newspapers constantly saying this is a disaster people are going to die in their thousands it had a palpable impact on people's sense of confidence their sense of uh, whether they would take their freedoms back or hide away from them and so I think these people ought to be held to account, but of course they never are. And I think there's coming out of this, I think a lot more people are going to be sceptical of the expert classes. I hope they are. And a lot of people are going to, I think, be more um, questioning about scientific claims and ask how they measure up against reality and how they measure up against what we as a society need going forward. Brendan, I think you're right. People are more sceptical about the the expert class. But my question is this, can we actually talk about it? Because I tell you what's really, really chilled me to the bone of the many freedoms we've lost, right? And they're even talking, even in Australia now, 
your the right of integrity to your own body is under threat from people who, you know, there is a a serious coercion program underway to force people to be vaccinated whether they want to or not. But freedom of speech, I, I tell you what, what is not reported, what is not said on the news, like uh, absolute silence, for instance, on comorbidities, you know, a 20-something person died yesterday. Yeah, but we're not told that they had comorbidities. Absolute silence. Absolute silence on the problems with the vaccines. Now, I'm not saying that the vaccines are irredeemably bad, but we can't report some basic facts, like the fact that uh, around 550 people have died in Australia, uh, you know, within a fortnight of taking one vaccine or another, which is not not to say that there's any, you know, those things have to be investigated. But how can we get to the truth about this if we're not even allowed to talk about it on mainstream media and there's no coverage uh, in the mainstream press? Is, is that your experience in Britain too? Yeah, the, the, one of the things that's worried me most over the past 18 months has been the destruction of open discussion and the clamping down on anyone who wanted to put forward an alternative view on lockdown or who wanted to raise questions about the origins of COVID-19. That was something that was shushed and, and actually censored as well on, on social media. I've been worried about that from the very beginning. And, and one of the should, reasons I've personally been point. worried about it is because the lockdown in this country, in the UK, coincided with an extraordinary Twitter storm involving me because the, the day the lockdown was announced, um, essentially the way it was announced in this country is that Boris Johnson said that pubs would be closing. And that was the moment at which we knew Britain was no longer Britain and things were going awry. So he announced that things were closing, pubs would close at 9pm that evening, shops would close unless they were essential shops and everyone had to stay at home. So it was a really dramatic announcement. And my response was to leave my office and go to my local pub around the corner uh, so that I could have another pint. And I, in that pub, I sat down and I wrote a piece for The Spectator saying... Um, it's terrible to close pubs. It's terrible to lock down. We're making an awful mistake. And uh, the the next morning, the piece was just under, I was under so much attack from politicians, from journalists. It was absolutely relentless to such an extent I had to switch off all my gadgets and just, well, stay at home, which is what we all had to do. But that was, a, it was an early indicator that it was, it, it was not going to be possible to have open discussions about lockdown. And Thankfully, Peter Hitchens took the heat of me because a couple of days later, he wrote a piece saying lockdown is a mistake. And then it was his turn to be subjected to an extraordinary Twitter storm. So very early on, I, I, I got a clear sense that this was not going to be a free discussion. And that became clearer as time went on. You know, I stopped doing a few TV things here in the UK because it was just impossible to have a discussion about what we were doing. Um, and, and that's carried on, you know, right through lockdown skeptics to this moment are still demonized if you look at the great barrington declaration for example which proposed um uh, uh, protection for elderly and vulnerable people rather than lockdowns people like sunitra gupta for example an incredibly intelligent uh, professor at oxford and she was she is relentlessly demonized simply for proposing an alternative to lockdown and, and that happens to everyone who raises these questions and then if you look at the lab leak theory Initially, the lab leak theory, uh, uh, the idea that COVID came from a laboratory in Wuhan was just completely written off as a conspiracy theory. You had to be a Trumpite to buy into this nonsense. You could be censored on Facebook for even raising it. 
And then suddenly, a few months ago, Joe Biden says maybe we should take it a bit more seriously. Other experts are starting to take it seriously, which is not to say it's been proven, but they are taking it seriously as a theory. Matt Ridley has just co-authored a really, really good book, uh, forthcoming, I think, on on the lab leak theory. Um, and, and that in particular shows up the folly of censorship, because the problem with censorship Yeah, so the the problem with censorship, of course, is that it suppresses discussion about perfectly legitimate issues and makes it harder for us to get to the truth. And the truth may well be that this came from a laboratory or came from some man-made uh, uh, situation. So suppressing discussion is always, always a bad idea. We should mention here the book by Shari Marks and uh, whatever, uh, what really happened in Wuhan. Shari was guest on this podcast last week and... Uh, uh, be an excellent guest for your podcast too, Brendan. But look, I mean, this is very a very crucial point you raise about the lockdown. I'm just going to ask this question because I know Tim and Simon are dying to get in. But uh, look at the history. In, in January last year, China was welding the doors shut on apartment blocks. They'd locked down an entire city. And The Guardian is writing pieces expressing concerns about the human rights issues. How could they do this in response to a pandemic uh, that no Western government would possibly dream of doing this because of the amount of force and coercion involved? That's, that's January. Um, fast forward to the end of March and almost every country in the Western world, one by one, in rapid succession, even little old New Zealand, which had closed its borders to the outside world 10 days previously, does this. And then we're not allowed to question it. Never been done before. Never been done. This is a 14th century technique for dealing with disease, which we've managed to abandon in the 20th century because we have better ways of actually treating diseases. What on earth happened? Did the whole world fall into some great delusionary mindset, do you reckon? Well, I mean, that is the million dollar question. And I think people will be analysing that question for years and years to come. And Neil Ferguson, the famous or infamous, depending on your view, the famous or infamous um, Imperial College epidemi- uh, modeler, he, he, he gave a really interesting interview to The Times here in the UK um, at the end of last year, in which he had this line which I thought was so interesting. He was talking about lockdown and and the institutionalization of lockdown in the UK in March 2020. And he had this line where he said, "Um, we saw what was happening in China. We never thought we could get away with it here. And uh, then when they they changed their minds when Italy um, uh, locked down, because Italy was hit very hard by COVID uh, shortly after the uh, Chinese problem. And then Uh, lockdown was instituted in other European countries and eventually in the UK as well. And I thought that was so interesting, what we could get away with. And he talked about how the threshold for authoritarianism seemed to be changing and people's openness to being ruled in this way seemed to be changing. And certainly there um, there were elements within the government here which assisted in in bringing about that change. So uh, the government didn't only employ epidemiologists and and, and medical experts, but also behavioral scientists who were used to, in the words of Robert Dingwall, Robert Dingwall was an advisor to the government too, but he kind of lost faith in what they were doing. And he said that these people were used to terrorize the population, to send a message of terror in order to bring about conformity with lockdown and to ensure that people did stay at home. So yeah, 
how did that happen? How did we go from China, a Chinese lockdown sweeping the world? And and was it necessary? That's the other thing that I think we'll have to analyze and think about. You know, I I'm a, I had COVID very early Brendan. on. I got it in March 2020. So um, when when lockdown started, I was ill with COVID at home for two weeks. It was unpleasant, but it was not particularly beyond the realm of what I had experienced before with bad flus or bad bugs. Um, and for most people, that is the case. For most people, it is the case that when you get COVID-19, it is like having a pretty bad flu or really rotten cold, or some people, of course, have no symptoms at all. Now, there are older people and more vulnerable people for whom it is a far more serious virus. So that does raise questions about how we protect those people and how we organize society in such a way that the, the, the fit and the healthy can carry on working and being economically productive while the old are protected from the worst impact of the disease. But we didn't have that discussion. We weren't allowed to have it. And instead, we all copied China. It was actually quite a surreal moment in, in human history. And, 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 and now you mentioned Neil Ferguson and you mentioned uh, the way the British... Because I remember reading it very early on that... You, you tell me what, whether this is true or not. That the British government, and probably most governments, Western governments, had contingency plans for just this kind of con this event. For years, they'd, they'd been planning for uh, a virus of this kind of scale. And for some reason, they abandoned it. Now, you're saying that, that uh, and I believe the British <laughs> government had a very good plan that was never even looked at uh, because of, possibly because of the what happened in, in, in China and then Italy, that they just immediately abandoned it and embraced, uh, you know, g g all these people like Neil Ferguson, who, let's be honest, um, his 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 modelling history was not great. You know, he he'd been involved in the foot and mouth thing. He'd been involved in various other virus outbreaks and had made equally nonsensical and uh, predictions based on the same modelling uh, things that had been hopelessly wrong before. Why? Why was the government so blindly following? You know, if, if you were an architect and you built seven houses and four of them fell over, you would never be employed again. Why? Why did the government keep going back to this guy and the and Imperial College? Well, you know, I think I've asked myself a similar question so many times, and um, the government did have its own plans for for an eventuality like this, and they they were either ditched or they were amended or they weren't followed in the way that we had expected them to be followed. But the thing is, I think that it, what we what happened is there was a perfect storm of different kinds of ideological and cultural outlooks, which really smashed together over the COVID problem. So a lot of the reasons for lockdown, I think, are, are, are ideas that precede COVID-19. For example, the idea of um, the culture of safety, the idea of risk aversion, the idea that uh, protecting health and protecting life is the ultimate goal of human society and everything else can be sacrificed in, in its name. Even the idea of the safe space, you know, the idea that has taken off on campuses over recent years, the idea that you need a safe space in which you're never harmed by other ideas, you're never harmed by toxic people, all these different things. You know, I, I read someone, someone said recently that the, the elites in the UK had been social distancing for years and years and years, you know, that socially distancing <laughs> themselves from the rabble, socially distancing themselves from controversial ideas. So social distancing as an ideological outlook had already existed prior to this as well. So 
the culture of fear, the culture of risk aversion, the, the, ten, the tendency towards apocalyptic thinking and this desire to cut ourselves off from other people in case their toxic views and their toxic habits infect us, all of those things were swirling around in the ideological climate before COVID even hit us. And I think then COVID comes along and, and all of that stuff is really kicked into action and, and, and the a sense of fear and atomization among the public was exploited to, to bring about some pretty authoritarian measures. Now, as it happens, I, I, I think something did have to be done about COVID-19. I think it, it, it was a pretty serious problem for the countries that experienced it. You know, we, 100, more than 100,000 people died in the UK, but we had the worst of both worlds in this country. So on the one hand, we locked down the fit and the healthy. We put them under house arrest, essentially, but we failed to protect the elderly. So infected elderly people were allowed to go back into care homes Care homes were not sufficiently protected from the virus and many, a huge number of the deaths occurred in care homes. So we didn't protect the vulnerable and we locked down the fit. And that seems to me to be just extraordinarily stupid. Brendan, we can't tell you how exciting it is to talk to somebody from the outside world from here in Australia. We want to make the most <laughs> of this half hour. Uh, we've talked about COVID up to now, but I know uh, Tim wanted to move on and, and talk about uh, the big event happening at the moment or recently in Britain, the Labour Party conference and what that says about British politics. Tim? Yes, uh, Brendan. Uh, by the way, it's a funny old world when we're copying the Chinese for once, isn't it? But... Uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, there's a, a, a fringe political movement in the UK called the Labour Party who had a big uh, their big conference in Brighton. Uh, there were numerous highlights. I've got one, but uh, how did you read read that affair? I just think I, I despair about the Labour Party. I mean, I've always been against the Labour Party in this country. I think they they pretend to represent the working classes and they haven't really for a very long time. But now I'm almost starting to feel sorry for them because it is such an extraordinary mess of a party. It really is quite staggering. I think the um, my favourite moment was when um, Keir Starmer was talking to some journalist and he said the next James Bond should be a woman. And then I thought, but hold on, <laughs> the Labour Party refuses to say what a woman is. Yes. And uh, one of the key one of the key talking points at the Labour Party conference, unbelievably, was the idea that pretty much anyone can be a woman simply by identifying as one. So I thought to myself, okay, so someone with a penis could be a woman and could be James Bond. So it's still a bloke. So the the confusions swirling around the Labour Party right now are extraordinary and i think um the trans issue is actually really important for labor i think it is to keir starmer what the um jewish issue was to jeremy corbyn and what i mean by that is that jeremy corbyn allowed some really disgusting anti-semitic mm. voices to rise up in the labor party and to take hold of the more radical wing of it and didn't sufficiently do anything about it um, and now I think what's happening with Starmer is that he's allowing the identitarian mob, uh, the, the kind of particularly the, the, the so-called trans allies, to rise up in the Labour Party to harass women and to push forward these utterly eccentric views that the vast majority of the people don't uh, align with. So the Labour Party has gone from being a supposedly working class party to being a party of the eccentric middle classes, and it's a real downward spiral. One of the speakers, uh, it wasn't Starmer, but uh, one of the speakers, Brendan, said that uh, during a question and answer kind of uh, format, 
said that Labor had taken great steps to um, fix itself post-Corbyn. And one of these measures was that all MPs were receiving training in, uh, in being anti-Semitic. Now, you'd hope that that would be a very short course, just don't be anti-Semitic. But when you've, got, when you've actually got to train people to do that, you've got deeper problems that could perhaps be addressed at one conference. Exactly. I mean, my personal view is that the anti-Semitism problem in the Labour Party has has been brushed under the carpet, even now. I mean, obviously, we've talked about it a lot. There have been news reports. It's been front and centre in, in a lot of the discussion over the past few years. But I don't think we've had an honest reckoning with the fact that what we witnessed in the com- this country was the return of the socialism of fools. That's what it was. So that's, that's a, a phrase that comes from the early 20th century from a socialist who said that socialists who become anti-Semitic, are, that's the socialism of fools. They think Jews represent capitalism, they're racist, they're anti-Semitic. That came back in the UK in a very pronounced way. And uh, we haven't had a, a, a proper reckoning with that, in my view. And, and I still speak to radical leftists in media discussions and so on. And they still get on their high horse and they still say that you're racist and Islamophobic if you criticise any aspect of Islam. Uh, They still say Britain is a foul, disgusting, racist country. They exaggerate the problem of racism all the time while ignoring the fact that they were central to a movement that was racist and was institutionally racist in terms of what happened to Jewish Labour MPs. This is a a moment in in Labour Party history where its Jewish MPs were hounded out of the party, utterly unprecedented in modern times in Western Europe, and we still haven't got to grips with that. But yeah, you'd think that a course on anti-Semitism would just say, don't be a racist twat. But (laughs) apparently the Labour Party needs uh you know it needs to have these discussions because it seems to think that i think there are elements within the labor party that don't understand what anti-semitism is and don't understand how serious it is brendan we're almost out of time i just want to ask you one more question uh, uh, the other day um we got down some things called dvds uh from a top shelf uh, and watched the entire I think the first and second series of Little Britain. Uh, and hilarious. I mean, those guys, it is just such the funniest thing you've ever seen. Um, brilliant humour. Not that old. Uh, I don't know, 10 years, maybe a bit longer. But it would be utterly impossible to screen that on British television these days. In fact, utterly impossible to screen anything resembling humour. You know, that great comedies, British comedies of, of, of old... Could we ever create anything like Monty Python or Blackadder? Could they ever do those again? Absolutely not. And um, we have hard proof that you couldn't do that now because if you all cast your minds back to the um, BLM riots that took place after the killing of George Floyd, which spread to the UK pretty speedily, and that gave rise to this neo-Maoist moment in which not only were people protesting against police violence, which is fine, people can protest against anything they want, that's that's not a problem, but it led to the tearing down of statues, it led to British cultural institutions um, hiding away certain artefacts or promising to change the names of certain 
rooms and buildings. It led to this real orgy of self-flagellation in this country and other countries where this shame-faced attitude towards our history, including towards very recent culture like Little Britain, which had um, trigger warnings attached to it on some streaming services. Uh, Faulty Towers, the, the infamous a German episode of Faulty Towers was taken down from a streaming service for a while, uh, which just shows the utter philistine idiocy of these people, because anyone who's watched Faulty Towers will know that uh, uh, Basil Faulty, John Cleese in that scene, is mocking um, lower middle class Brits who are still obsessed with the war, not German people. So the, even the complexities of comedy are not appreciated by these Philistine censors. So yeah, we've had Little Britain and other comedy shows come under attack very recently for being offensive, for being racist and all the other stupid stuff that is said about it. So we live in extremely intolerant times and one of the great victims of it is humor because of course the whole point of humor is that you wind people up you say funny things you push the boat out you you test out ideas you you sail close to the wind so to speak and that's not allowed today and in fact there's a new movement that's taking off in the US of comedians who refuse to be funny and so they go on stage and instead of making jokes which is apparently a bad thing to do in such a terrible era as ours they go on stage and they essentially just make little speeches. I mean, that is an actual trend that's taking off. So humour could be one of the things we miss most as we move into this new era of intolerance. We've got we've got a movement of cartoonists who refuse to be funny here, um, <laughs> uh, with a notable exception of the great Johannes Leek. I know you're great friends with Johannes and, and were indeed with Bill. Look, uh, thank you for joining us, Brendan. It's been a great pleasure to have you on this show we'll just put a little plug for your podcast the brendan o'neill show must listen for me every week and i know a lot of other people over here too and there's a spike podcast and of course spiked itself were well, that haven for common sense thank you for for keeping the fires burning over there brendan thanks guys thanks for having me cheers mate good to hear Do you know one of the funny things about lockdown is I don't think I've actually missed not being able to fly overseas, except for one thing. I've kind of missed going two years without a beer with Brendan O'Neill. He's such good company, isn't he? What are we really looking forward to now that we're getting to towards the great threshold of 80% vaccination when the whole world becomes safer and we can open up? We, um, we keep being promised that it's coming soon this day when we'll emerge blinking in the sunlight like moles emerging from thousands of miles underground. I'm not sure how a lot of people are going to be able to cope. I think Simon's uh, Simon's adapted well to our straightened circumstances. I want to hear how he's um, he's going to deal with our, our restored freedoms. Well, you know, these th these things are incremental, as, as we've now learned over the last... And so there are lots of false summits. Sometimes you think it's coming back, then it's not, and then... But to me, one of the big things was... Um, Last week, uh, uh, I have to say, after I got my second jab so that I was completely safe for the community, uh, I was delighted when they reopened Sydney's swimming pools. Because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bit of a, uh, uh, I, I, love my, I love my lap swimming. Anyway, so I, I, I was so excited. I, I went to, my local, to the local pool and I did my laps and I got out of the pool and it was wonderful. And I, and I genuinely felt a sense of gratitude and then I thought, hang on a minute, why am I feeling grateful? You know, 
there was a time when if you looked at all the criticisms of of Australians in, 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 in the press about what, what COVID's done to us, people said that it's turned us into a nation of sheep, of, you know, of kind of blind, you know, of blind obedience. But actually, it's, we're not sheep now. We've gone beyond the sheep mark. We are now dogs. And I say that because if you, if you, if you, if you got your best mate or your partner and you, and you, and you put them in the boot of your car and you left them there for a couple of days, right? And then you opened the I boot. I know what it's like. I've done it frequently. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who, who, who can honestly say they'd never be tempted? I've seen but, it. And then you, but then you open it, and, if, and they get out, and they would be quite entitled, and you'd expect them to smack you around the face, or, or at the very least have a good game. Yeah. Mm. Now, we, we have just been locked in the, the boot of our constitutional car for six months or whatever, We've we've finally been released. What are we doing? We're licking them gratefully. We're licking. We're gratefully licking uh, our liberators, and that's. I think that you know maybe that's the kind of thing that informs the opinions of that guy in Florida. Who knows? Well, it depends on the car, doesn't it, Simon? It depends on the vehicle. If you're locked in the boot of a Leyland P seventy six, you know you'd probably be a bit, you know. Well, mate, a bit cruisy with it. I mean, the selling point of that car was that you could fit a forty-four gallon drum in the in the in the boot, which I well, can mate. only imagine is attractive to Adelaide buyers. <laughs> what about that, those big old Chryslers from the seventies? You you could you could have a you could have a Playboy party in the boot of one of those. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think you were stretching the mark when you said that we were treated like sheep. I mean, at least sheep get a dip once in a while. Yes, and, and yes, you were yes. telling me you weren't allowed to go in this in the pool how, how are those uh, irritated little rashes that, that was one of my jobs back on the farm by the way I used to run the sheep dip okay. and it um, yeah you it's a it's, it's quite a test they you get have like a it's like a broom without bristles and you sort of push that on the sheep's neck and you've got to dunk them all the way an undunk sheep even partially is a risk to everybody yeah, yeah. like like the vaccine mm. do you have to double dunk them no you don't double dip a lot of people don't realise that Australians who live alone, one of the one of the one of the up, you could say it's an upside or a downside, that after a while, you know, enjoying lockdown, they simply stop washing altogether. Not just going, not just going to the pool, but you know, when you know you're not going to meet anybody for three weeks, what's the point? So you just wet your hair for a Zoom. Um, but uh, at least the pool's opening again. It, it means that people like me have to get more or less clean now on a regular basis good, good now i'd like to close with some sport news but as you know there has been one covid case discovered in townsville and as a result all sport across the whole country <laughs> has been shut down for the duration yes uh so instead um, you might like to tell us you you talk about october early on what is october simon well um i don't know whether you guys are aware of it but i for, for a while now I've, I've been for years in fact I've been aware that you know there's a thing called month appropriation I don't know whether that's the actual term but there's a thing called month appropriation Australia actually invented it <laughs> people don't realise this but the, but the, but the greatest the greatest Australian invention since the Hills Hoist was was uh, month appropriation it started with Movember which was a very good cause but that was the first time that, that a, a cause embraced an entire month since then I've always been keen to um, yep. register various months. For example, 
you know, not long after that, we had things like dry January, uh, uh, non, you know, non-drinking January, and then that got its apogee with um, dry July, and you know, and and then you realise that it has to rhyme with a syllable of the month. Like Rocktober, for example, that we used to have in the seventies with three X Y and two S M. Well, we'll get back to we will get back to Rocktober because it's now not Rocktober. But I wanted to have, for example, I wanted to register my antidote to to a non-drinking January and dry July. I wanted to have February, where you only drink beer for a month, <laughs> uh, and, and 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 then and then I want to have Grapeful where you only drink wine for a month, which is just to balance the whole thing. But my big thing was I wanted to have Mocktober when you can make fun of people or, 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 or anything that you want with impunity for a month. But you can't because it's been taken, according to an ABC um, uh, interview I heard last week, it's, been, it's now, it's not October, it's October, which is the Australian Actors Benevolent Fund. It's their official month where we you're invited to donate money to help our poor acting community who, who let's be fair unlike a lot of uh, working people they they weren't they were entitled to things like uh, income support or you know a, a business assistance from the government during covid and so when musicians can't work what they do is they go and stand on a street corner and they busk why why don't we have out of work actors Going to stand on Flinders Street Station or outside there or 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 or, 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 or Circular Quay, saying you know, um, you know, do you feel lucky, punk? Or uh, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Why don't why why isn't there why isn't there thespian busking? Well, there is, there is, mate, there is, there is such a thing. Oh, you see it all the time. Actually, you don't see it all the time, but you pay for it all the time. I was, so far as I was aware, the um. Australia's Australian Actors Benevolent Fund is called the ABC. Have you have you seen the cast lately? How many people? Have, how many actors are involved in play school? They've got like fifty people. It's not like just like one presenter. He's gone it's downhill a, since Naomi Hazelhurst left. It's a I cast think. of thousands. It's Ben Hur up there for kids. It's ridiculous. Did the, the organisers this Love a Lovey Month check with the Germans? <laughs> I mean, I mean, how are they going to feel about this in uh, Munich? Well, Oktoberfest. I don't know why you've got to reinvent October for pissheads, Simon, with some complicated Mocktober. It's Oktoberfest. You're thinking of Achtungtober. It's a different month. <laughs> yeah, but how many months do the German want? The Germans want? They've already got March. <laughs> I Jeez, used to live in. I used to live. I used to live in Wallara, very close to the the Goethe Institute in Wallara. And um, and uh, I used to drive past past it every morning, and there was always a big sign out for years, that, inviting you to go and do things inside. One of these big posters said, "Learn German now." And one night, I went out with a big black marker, and I, underneath it, I wrote, "That is an order." And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a few a few years ago, I remember reading a story about there'd been a series of car accidents in uh, in Germany because. Um, uh, GPS, you know the, the 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 sort of travel aids had just sort of kicked in, and uh, and and these were early generation sort of GPS units, and um, they didn't take into account roadworks, for example, or that maybe a bridge was out, and uh, and Germans were just you know listening to their instructions and just driving off the ends of ends of roads and into walls and so on, and uh, obviously they were just literally following orders. <laughs> 
Uh, I don't know, man. We've got to go through these months and get them sorted out. We need some sort of heterosexual awareness month called Manuary or something. And uh, Manual, you could, yes. And you could balance that off against the month of gay. I don't know. There's, there's, there's got to be ways to fix all these months. <laughs> and there's a, there's, a, there's a month when you just don't drink anything at all. That's called Patch. <laughs> or, or the the month of the month of consent, May. Well, that's that's no, that's the month of conditional assent. That's for another week, I guess. So, uh, well, look, I, I think we've settled on the name, and it was Simon's idea in the first place. So, thanks for listening to a f- entire episode of the Six O'clock Squeal, which I presume you haven't got this far, and um, we'll be back again soon. <laughs> <laughs>